I saw the circle before I saw the kid in the middle. I was nine years old, the summer of 1978, and Marcy was my world. The shadowy bench-lined inner pathways that connected the 27 six-story buildings of Marcy houses were like tunnels that we kids would burrow through. Housing projects can seem like labyrinths to the outsiders, as complicated and intimidating as a Moroccan bazaar, but we knew our way around. Marcy sat on top of the G-Train, which connects Brooklyn to Queens, but not to the city. For Marcy kids, Manhattan is where your parents went to work. If they were lucky, and where we'd yellow bus it with our elementary class on special trips. I'm from, on, I'm from New York, but I didn't know that at nine. The street signs for Flushing, Marcy, Nostrand, and Myrtle Avenues seemed like metal flags to me. Bed-Stuy was my country, Brooklyn, my planet. When I got a little old, older, Marcy would show me its menace, but for a kid in the 70s, it was mostly an adventure, full of concrete corners to turn, dark hallways to explore, and everywhere, and everywhere other kids. When you jump the fences to play football on the grassy patches that, that pass for a park, you might find the field studded with glass shards that caught the light like diamonds and would pierce your sneakers just as fast. Turning one of those concrete corners, you might bump into your older brother clutching dollar bills for a dice game, CeeLo being called out like hardcore bingo. It was the 70s and heroin, heroin was still heavy in the hood, so we would dare one another to push a leaning nodder off a bench the way kids on farms tip sleeping cows. Hmm. I'm just reading the first passage, and I really like that imagery, you know, and um, the metaphor he would use. And it kind of paints um, the darkness, like that coming from, like the darkness, but also the sense of adventure, you know, that you can get living in a place that most people would consider, you know, dangerous and hellish. And at times, you know, making your own fun is very vital. And I'm just going to read that sentence again. So we would dare one another to push a leaning nodder off a bench the way kids on farms tip sleeping cows. The unpredictability was one of the things we counted on. Like the day when I wandered up to something I'd never seen before, a cipher. But I wouldn't have called it that. No one would have back then. It was just a circle of scrappy, ashy, skinny Brooklyn kids laughing and clapping their hands. Their eyes trained on the center. I might have been with my cousin B. High, but I might have been alone. On my way home from playing baseball with my little league squad, I shouldered through the crowd toward the middle, or maybe B. High cleared the way, but it felt like gravity pulling me into the swirl of kids. No bullshit, like a planet pulled into orbit by a star. His name was Slate, and he was a kid I used to see around the neighborhood. An older kid who barely made an impression. In the circle, though, he was transformed. Like the church ladies touched by the spirit, and everyone was mesmerized. He was rhyming, throwing out couplet after couplet, like he was in a trance for a crazy long time. Thirty minutes straight off the top of the head, never losing the beat. Riding the hand claps. He rhymed about nothing, the sidewalk, the benches. Or we'd go in on the kids who were standing around listening to him. Call out someone's leaning sneakers, someone's leaning sneakers, or dirty Lee jeans. And then he'd go in on how clean he was, but how nice he was with the ball, how all the girls loved him. Then he would just start rhyming about the rhymes themselves, how good they were, how much better they were than yours, how he was the best that had ever did it, in all five bor boroughs and beyond. He never stopped moving, not dancing, just rotating in the center of the circle, looking for his next target. The sun started to set, the crowd moved in closer. The next clap kept coming, and he kept meeting it with another rhyme. It was like watching some kind of combat, but he was alone in the center. 
All he had were his eyes, taking in everything and the world inside him. I was and the words inside him. I was dazzled. That's some cool shit was the first thing I thought. Then I could do that. That night, I started writing rhymes in my spiral notebook. From the beginning, it was easy, a constant flow. For days, I filled a page after page. Then I'd bang a beat out on the table. My bedroom window, whatever had a flat surface, and practice from time to time. I woke up in the morning until I went to sleep. My mom would think I was up watching TV, but I'd be in the kitchen pounding on the table rhyming. One day, she brought a three-ring binder from ho- home from work for me to write in. The paper in the binder was unlined, and I filled every blank, pl- every blank space on every page. My rhymes looked real chaotic, crowded against one another, some vertical, some slanting into the corners. But when I looked at them, the order was clear. I connected with an older kid who had a reputation as the best rapper in Marcy. Jazz was his name. And we started practicing our rhymes into a heavy-ass tape recorder with a makeshift mic attached. The first time I heard our voices played back on tape, I realized that a recording captures you, but plays back a distortion, a different voice from the one you hear in your own head. Even though I could recognize myself instantly, I saw it as an opening, a way to recreate myself and reimagine my world. After I recorded a rhyme, it gave me an unbelievable rush to play it back, to hear that voice. One time a friend peeked inside my notebook, and the next day I saw him in school, reciting my rhymes like they were his. I started writing real tiny so no one could steal my lyrics, and then I started straight hiding my notebook, stuffing it in my mattress like it was cash. Everywhere I went, I'd write, if I was crossing the street with my friends and a rhyme came to me, I'd break out my binder, spread, spread it on a mailbox or a lamppost, and write the rhyme before I crossed the street. I didn't care if my friends left me at the light. I had to get it out. Even back then, I thought I was the best. I'm the king of hip-hop, renewed like Reeboks. Key and lock, rhyme so provocative as long as I live. There were some real talents in Marcy. DJs started setting up sound systems in the project courtyards, and me and Jazz and other MCs from around the way would battle one another for hours. It wasn't like that first cypher I saw. The crowds were more serious now, and the beat was kept by eight-foot-tall speakers and subwoofers that would rattle the windows of the apartments around us. I was good at battling, and I practiced it like a sport. I'd spend free time reading the dictionary, building my vocabulary for battles, I could be ruthless, calm as fuck on the outside, but flooded with adrenaline because the other rapper was coming for me, too. It wasn't a Marquise of Queensberry situation. I I saw people getting swung on when the rhymes cut too deep, but mostly, as dangerous as it felt, it stayed lyrical. I look back now, and and it still amazes me how intense those moments were. Back when there was nothing at stake but your rep, your desire to be the best poet on the block. I wasn't even in high school yet, and I discovered my voice, but I still needed a story to tell. So, um, you know, that first section of the book, I wanted to read um, these first few uh, passages because uh, this book really means a lot to me. I'm reading Jay-Z's Decoded, and uh, I think that Jay-Z is definitely one of the most innovative hip-hop artists of all time. And it's it's pretty clear, you know, like he's probably one of the most prolific, prolific artists. You know, you can't deny everything that he's done for the culture and uh, the artistry and j- just the business, too, as well. You know, the business side And this book really 
kind of gives us a look behind the the man in the myth you know it it gives us a chance to really see um to really see how he grew up you know how we learned to memorize his raps because later in this book you know he he talks about selling drugs and and not being able just to carry a notebook on him all the time and how he memorizes his rhymes is he starts you know memorizing it by you know two bars he memorizes two bars okay what's next all right i'm gonna memorize four bars then just kept growing until he could damn near memorize a whole record you know like um um, dirt off your shoulder you know and um if you if you go and watch the fade in the black documentary which i love like you you get to you get to see him work and um really tap into that creativity and it's it's really awesome to read about artists including hip-hop artists and the humble beginnings you know um the way he describes the marcy projects how how it was an adventure for him even though that there were things that you know some people would consider dangerous you know like uh, the imagery of him tipping over a uh you know a heroin addict as if you know they were a cow it really you know ties in deep you know with the drug culture and uh the issues that New York was facing but i'm going to read a little bit deeper into into this passage and then uh, i just want to talk about this book because this is a book that if you are a hip hop fan i recommend this you know i really recommend this if you are a hip hop artist i recommend this because it it gives you a glimpse into someone who is very successful and uh it's you need to look into their mind hip hop was looking for a narrative too by the time the 80s came along rap was exploding and i remember the mainstream breakthroughs like they were my own rites of passage in 1981 the summer before 7th grade the funky 4 plus 1 plus 1 more performed that's the joint on saturday night live and the rock steady crew got on ABC Nightly News for battling the dynamic rockers at Lincoln Center in a legendary showdown of b-boy dance crews. My parents watched Soul Train every Saturday when we cleaned up, but when my big sister Annie and I saw Don Cornelius introduce the Sugar Hill Gang, we just stopped in the middle of the living room with our jaws open. What are they doing on TV? I saw the 12-inch of uh, Run DMC's It's Like That backed with Sucker MC's being definitive the same year, 1983, the year I started high school. Bambada released Looking for the Perfect Beat and shot a wild-ass video wearing feathered headdresses that they play on the local access channel. Annie and I would make up dance routines to those songs, but we didn't take it as far as the costumes. Herbie Hancock's Rocket came out that year, too. And those three records were a cultural trifecta. Disco and even my parents' classic R&B records all faded into the background. Everywhere we went, there were 12-pound boomboxes being pulled on skateboards or cars parked on the curb blasting those records. DJ Red Alert debuted his show on KISS FM and Africa Islam had a show, Zulu Beats, on WHBI. The world's famous Supreme Team did a show you had to catch early in the morning. Kids would make cassettes and bring them to school to play to one another. The freshest new song from the night before. I'm not going to say that I thought I could get rich from rap, but I could clearly see that it was going to get bigger before it went away. Way bigger. The feeling those records gave me was so profound that it's sometimes surprising to listen to them now. Like those three songs that shook my world back in the early 80s. Rocket had complicated sounding scratching by Grand Mixer DXT, which was big for me because I wanted to be a DJ before I wanted to be a rapper. 
I would practice scratching at my friend's Al- at my friend Alan's house on two mismatched turntables mounted on a long piece of plywood, but Rocket had no real voice aside from a looping synthetic one. Looking for the perfect beat was true to its title. Obsessed with beats, not lyrical content. Then there was Sucka MCs. From the first listen, Run, D- Run DMC felt harder than the Sugar Hill Gang or even Cool Mo D and other serious serious battle rappers of the time. Run DMC's songs were the har- were like the hardest rock you've ever heard, stripped to its core chords. Their voices were big, like their beats, but naturally slick, like hustlers. The rhymes were crisp and aggressive. Run's lyrics described the good life, champagne, caviar, bubble baths. He rapped about having a big, long caddy, not like a Seville, a line that seems like a throwaway, but to me felt meaningful. He was being dis- descriptive and precise. Run didn't just say a car. He said a caddy. He didn't just say a caddy. He said a Seville. In those few words, he painted a picture and then gave it emotional life. I completely related. I saw the kid from public housing whose whole hood would rubberneck when an expensive car drove down the block. Run had the spirit of a battle rapper, funny, observant, charismatic, and confrontational, but his rhymes were more refined. When he passed the mic to his partner, DMC followed with the story told in short strokes. That felt completely raw and honest. It was like he was looking around his hood in Queens and around his bedroom, his mom's kitchen, and just calling out what he saw. But the beat and DMC's delivery elevated that humble life into something iconic. I'm light-skinned, I live in Queens, and I love eating chicken and collard greens. With that song, hip-hop felt like it was starting to find its style and swagger and point of view. It was going to be raw and aggressive, but also witty and slick. It was going to boast and compete and exaggerate, but it was also going to care enough to get the details right about our aspirations and our crumb-snatching struggles, our specific, small realities, chicken and collard greens, and our living colored dreamscapes, Big Long Caddy. It was going to be real. Before Run DMC, rappers dressed like they were headed to supper clubs for after-dinner drinks or in full costume. Run DMC looked like the streets, in denim, leather, and sneakers. But for all of the Run DMC style and showmanship, there was something missing in their songs. A story was unfolding on the streets of New York and around the country that still hadn't made it into rap, except as an absence. We heard Melly Mel's hit the message with its lyrics about broken glass everywhere. And we heard about Run's big long caddy. But what was missing was what was what was happening in between those two images. How young cats were stepping through the broken glass and into the caddy. The missing piece was the story of the hustler. So the story of the hustler is really interesting, you know, and, and the way like Jay-Z kind of um Jay-Z, th- this is a great book, even if, I, he definitely had help with this, you know, of course, like, I, f- I feel like the way that this is structured, you know, um, I don't know how Jay-Z finds the time to write shit like this, but I really like this book because it just, it, it just, sh- it, it chronicles the evolution of hip-hop through the eyes of this young man coming up, and I think it's, um, it's really beautiful and stellar, and, poetic in a sense because you know he's he saw the he saw the absence that needed to be filled and no I think it's a wonderful thing I think it's a wonderful thing because it leads to innovation innovation 
innovation is the thing that pushes everything forward. And it's clear that Jay-Z is an innovator as well as an originator. You know, so he took took the took the hustler persona and uh he really put a voice behind that. Now that's something special. You know, at the time I don't think anyone was really gonna be doing it like Jay Z. Let's be honest, like that mafioso style. He really ushered that in piece by piece. Back to the book. The story of the rapper and the story of the hustler are like rap itself. Two kinds of rhythms working together having a conversation with each other, doing more together than they could do apart. It's been said that the thing that makes rap special, that makes it different, both from pop music and from written poetry, is that it's built around two kinds of rhythm. The first kind of rhythm is the meter. In poetry, the meter is abstract, but in rap, the meter is something you literally hear. It's the other sounds that are on the track. Even if it's a Timbaland production with all kinds of offbeat fills and electronics, a rap song is usually built bar by bar, four beat measure by four beat measure. It's like time itself, taking off relentlessly in a rhythm that never varies and never stops. When you think about it like that, you realize the beat is everywhere. You just have to tap into it. You can bang it out on a project wall or an 808 drum machine or just use your hands. You can beatbox it with your mouth. But the beat is only one half of a rap song's rhythm. The other is the flow. When a rapper jumps on a beat, he adds his own rhythm. Sometimes you stay in the pocket of the beat and just let the rhythms land on the square so that the beat and flow become one. But sometimes the flow chops up. <clears throat> the flow chops up, the beat breaks the the beat breaks the beat into smaller units, forces forces in multiple syllables and repeated sounds and internal rhymes or hangs in a drunken leg over the last over the sorry or hangs like a drunken leg over the last bap and keeps going, sneaks out of that bitch. The flow isn't like time. It's like life. It's like a heartbeat or the way you breathe. It can jump, speed up, slow down, stop, or pound right through like a machine. If the beat is time, flow is what we do with that time, how we live through it. The beat is everywhere. But everywhere, every life has to find its own flow. Just like beats and flows, just like how beats and flows work together, Rapping and hustling, for me at least, lived through each other. Those early raps were beautiful in their way. A whole generation of us felt represented for the first time when we heard them. But there's a reason the culture evolved beyond that playful, partying, lyrical style. Even when we recognized the voices and recognized the style, and even personally knew the cats who were on the records, the content didn't always reflect the lives that we were leading. There was a distance between what was becoming rap signature style, the relentlessness, the swagger, the complex wordplay, and the substance of the songs. The culture had to go somewhere else to grow. It had to come home. Cracks in my palm. No one hired a Skyrider and announced Cracks' arrival, but when it landed in your hood, it was a total takeover, sudden and complete. Like losing your man to gunshots or your father walking out the door for good. It was an irreversible new reality. What had been was gone, and in this place was a new way of life that was suddenly everywhere and seemed like it had been there forever. Cocaine wasn't new, and neither was selling it. There had always been older dudes who grew their pinky fingernails out to sniff coke. There were always down-low dealers who partied with their customers as they supplied them. Melly Mel had a song called White Lines, parentheses, 
don't do it. And of course, Curtis Blow called himself Blow. But for the most part, doing coke was something that happened at private parties. Something you might have heard about, but had never really seen. Crackheads were different. They'd smoke in hallways, on playgrounds, on subway station staircases. They got no respect. They were former neighbors, aunts, and uncles. But once they started smoking, they were simply crackheads. The lowest of the food chain on the jungle. Worse than prostitutes and almost as bad as snitches. Most of these friends were my parents' age or a little younger. Most of, the, most of these friends were my parents' age or a little younger. They had no secrets. Skeletal and ashy. They were as jittery as a rookie B-cop. And their eyes were always spinning with schemes to get money for the next hit. Kids my age were serving them. And these new little kamikazes who simply called themselves hustlers, like generations before us did, were everywhere, stacking their ones. Fuck waiting for the city to pass out summer jobs. I wasn't even a teenager yet, and suddenly everyone I knew had pocket money and better. When Biggie rhymed about how things done changed, he could have meant from one summer to the next. But it wasn't a generational shift, but a generational split. Look at our parents. They're even fucking scared of us. With that line, Big captured the whole transformation in a few words. Authority was turned upside down. Guys my age, fed up with watching their moms struggle on a single income, were paying utility bills with money from hustling. So how could those same mothers sit them down with a truant report? Outside, in Marcy's courtyards, and across the country, teenagers wore automatic weapons like they were sneakers. Broad daylight shootouts had our grandmothers afraid to leave the house and had neighbors who'd known us since we were toddlers forming neighborhood watches against us. There was a separation of style, too. Hip-hop was already moving fashion out of the disco clubs and popularizing rugged streetwear. But we'd take it even further. Baggy jeans and puffy coats to stash working weapons, construction boots to survive cold winter nights, working on the streets. New York wasn't big for gangbanging. But every era has its gangs. And during my high school years, it was the Decepticons, the lowlifes, even girl gangs like the Decepticons. Those broads would just walk up to grown men and punch them in their faces so hard they drop. The, pl- the proliferations of guns on the street added a different dynamic than the nunchucks, clackers, and kitchen, knife, kitchen knives kids my older brother's age used to use as weapons in their street fights. The trains were wild. In the early 80s, before I was 13, you had graffiti writers tagging trains, knocking conductors out with the canes of Krylon if they tried to protect their trains. You had stick-up kids looking for jewelry. 45s made it much more likely for you to to lose your sheepskin coat or your life on the A-Express. So my friends and I rolled hard for one another. My man Hill, names changed to protect the guilty, and I were close. And even before we got in the game, we were living through the changes it brought. I'd ride the train all the way back to East New York with him. We'd get off, go see his girl, and I'd ride back to Marcy alone. No, he'd get off, go see his girl, and I'd ride back to Marcy alone. One time we were on the train heading to Hill's chick's house, and these people across the aisle were just ice grilling us. We were outnumbered and only had one gun between us, but we grilled them right back. Nothing jumped off, and eventually, we got off the train. East New York was one of the most serious neighborhoods in the city, so we agreed that he'd hold on to the gun when he decided to spend the night out there. 
I hit the train alone to head back to Marcy. On the way back, I ran into the same dudes. Unbelievable. I was sitting on the train next to another guy who just happened to be there when they came through the car. They sat across the aisle from me. They wanted something with me real bad, but they couldn't figure out if the guy sitting next to me was with me. He wasn't still. I was looking at him like I'd murdered them for staring at me. When the guy next to me got off, they grilled at me for a minute. It was on. It wasn't a rare thing to have a fight your way home. Something as meaningless as a glance often ended up in a scuffle. And worse, you could get killed just for riding in the wrong train at the wrong time. I started to think that since I was risking my life anyway, I might as well get paid for it. It was that simple. One day, Hill told me that he was selling crack. He was getting from a guy named Dee Dee. I told him I wanted to be down, and he took me to meet the dude. I remember Dee Dee talking to us in a professional tone, taking his time so we'd really understand him. He explained that hustling was a business, but also had certain obvious inherent risks, so we had to be disciplined. He knew that, like him, neither of us even smoked weed, so we wasn't worried that we'd get high off the work. But he wanted, but he wanted to stress how real the game was. That as a hustle, it required vision and dedication. We thought we had both. Plus, my friend had a cousin in Trenton, New Jersey, doing the same thing. All we needed were Metro Liner tickets to join him. When Dee Dee was murdered, it was like something out of a mob movie. They cut off his balls and stuffed them in his mouth and shot him in the back of his head, execution style. You would think that would be enough to keep two 15-year-olds off the turnpike with a pocket full of white tops. But you're wrong. Yeah, some really extreme imagery right there. You know, all, all of the writing really um, it comes together and it puts together um, his experiences in a very vivid storytelling manner. And um, now this book to me. As well as it being a great autobiography, I feel like it's also a great um, chronological history of hip-hop. Especially uh, the way it branched from New York and the nuances and the, and the complexities that, that surrounded it. I was still rhyming, but now it took a backseat to hustling. It was all moving so fast. It was hard to make sense of it or see the big picture. Kids like me, the new hustlers, were going through something strange and twisted and had a crazy story to tell, and we needed to hear our story told back to us, so maybe we could start to understand it ourselves. Hip-hop was starting to catch up. Fresh Gordon was one of Brooklyn's biggest DJs. He was also seeing some action as a producer after he worked on Salt and Peppa's big hit, Push It. Like a lot of the DJs in the city, Gordy was doing mixtapes, and he had a relationship with my friend Jazz, so he invited us to come rhyme on a track that he was recording with Big Daddy Kane. I laid my little verse down, but when I went home, I couldn't get Kane's freestyle out of my head. I remember one pimp punchline in Kane's verse. Put a quarter in your ass because you played yourself. Played yourself wasn't even a phrase back then. He made it up right there on the tape. Impressive. I probably wrote a, m a million rhymes that night. That tape made it all around New York. It even traveled as far as Miami. This was back when black radio had slogans that assured Listeners, they were rap-free, so hip-hop moved on to an underground railroad for real. People were talking about the second kid on the tape, the MC before Kane. I was getting great feedback. 
I couldn't believe people even noticed my verse. Kane was so sick. Kane was Brooklyn's hero and an all-time great. But among New York MCs, there was no one like Rakim. And Rakim, we recognized the poet and the deep thinker. Someone who was getting closer to reflecting the truth of our lives in his tone and spirit. His flow was complex and his voice was ill. His vocal cords carried their own reverb, like he'd swallowed an ant. Back in 1986, when other MCs were still doing party rhymes, he was dead serious. Write a rhyme in graffiti and ever write a rhyme in graffiti in every show you see me in. Deep concentration, cause I'm no comedian. He was approaching rap like literature, like art. And the songs still banged at parties. Then the next wave crashed. Outside of New York, pioneers like IST in LA and Schoolie D in Philly had rhymed about gang life for years. But when the New York MCs started to push their own street stories, Boogie Down Productions came out with hard out con with hard but conscious street albums, Criminal Minded, where KRS One rhymed about catching a crack dealer with an automatic. He reached for his pistol, but it was just a waste, cause my 9mm was up against his face. Public Enemy came hard with songs about bass heads of black steel. These songs were exciting and violent, but they were also explicitly conscious and anti-hustling when and anti-hustling. When NWA straight out of Compton claimed everything west of New Jersey, it was clear they were ushering in a new movement. Even though I liked the music, the rhymes seemed over the top. It wasn't until I saw movies like Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society that I could see how real crack culture had become all over the country. It makes sense, since it came from LA, that the whole gangster rap movement would be supported cinematically. But by the time Dre produced The Chronic, the music was the movie. That was the first West Coast album you could hear knocking all over Brooklyn. The stories in those songs about gang banging and partying and fucking and smoking weed were real or based on reality. And I loved it on a visceral, on a visceral level, but it wasn't my story to tell. It's like the blues. We're going to ride out on this one. This is the last passage I'm going to read. I'm going to summarize this. As an MC, I still love rhyming for the sake of rhyming purely for the aesthetics of the rhyme itself. The challenge of moving around couplets, triplets, stacking double entendres, speeding, speed rapping. If it hadn't been for hustling, I would have been working on being the best MC, technically, to ever touch a mic. But when I hit the streets for real, it altered my ambition. I finally had a story to tell, and I felt obligated, above all, to be honest about that, that experience. That ambition defined my work for my first album on. Hip-hop had described poverty in the ghetto and painted pictures of violence and thug life, but I was interested in something a little different, the interior space of a young kid's head, his psychology. 13-year-old kids don't wake up one day and say, okay, I just want to sell drugs on my mother's stoop, hustle on my block, till I'm so hot people want to come look for me and start shooting out my mom's living room windows. Trust me, no one wakes up in the morning and wants to do that. To tell the story of the kid with the gun, without telling the story of why he has it, is a story to tell a kind of lie. To tell the story of the pain without telling the story of the rewards, the money, the girls, the excitement, it's a different kind of evasion. To talk about killing people dead without talking about 
waking up in the middle of the night from a dream about the friend you watched die or not getting to sleep in the first place because you're so paranoid from the work you're doing is a lie so deep it's criminal. I wanted to tell stories and boast to entertain and dazzle with creative rhymes. But everything I said had to be rooted in the truth of that experience. I owed it to all the hustlers I met or grew up with who didn't have a voice to tell their own and to myself. My life after childhood was two main stories, the story of the hustler and the story of the rapper, and the two overlap as much as they diverge. I was on the streets for more than half of my life from the time I was 13 years old. People sometimes say that I'm so far away from that life, but now that I've got business and Grammys and magazine covers, that I have no right to rap about it. But how distant is the story of your own life ever going to be? The feelings I had during that part of my life were burned into me like a brand. It was life during wartime. I lost people I loved, betrayed by people I trusted. Felt the breeze of bullets flying by my head. I saw crack addiction destroy families. It almost destroyed mine, but I sold it too. I stood on cold cor- I stood on cold corners, far from home, in the middle of the night, serving crack fiends, and then balled ridiculously in Vegas. I went dead broke and got hood rich on those streets. I hated it. I was addicted to it. Nearly killed me, but no matter what, it is the place where I learned not just who I was, but who we were, who all of us are. It was the site of my moral education. As strange as that may sound, it's my core story, and just like you, just like anyone, that core story is the one that I have to tell. I was part of a generation of kids who saw something special about what it means to be human, something bloody and dramatic and scandalous that happened right here in America. And hip-hop was our way of reporting that story, telling it to ourselves and to the world. Of course, that story is still evolving, and my life is too. So the way I tell it evolves and expands from album to album and song to song. But the story of the hustler was the story hip-hop was born to tell. Not its own story, but the story that found its voice in the form and in return helped grow the form into an art. And um, I really just want to say thank you to everyone listening. This is a little bit more of a quiet, laid-back podcast. I'm not as amped up, you know. I mean, this um, this book, you know, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of somber stories, and I think I might do a series where I go back to it here and there, you know. Um, or I, I do plan on doing a lot more long-form podcasts, a lot more guests. You know, I have a lot of interviews coming up. Um, this 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 coming next month and my goal is um just to put out five six podcasts a month you know expect that consistency and that hard work you know it's never going to go away and what do you think have you read decoded by jay-z what do you think of jay-z do you appreciate his music do you not it's okay i want you to let me know you know message me i'm going to be all over the boards you know on facebook twitter instagram I have music coming, so please take the time to listen. Help your help your boy out, you know. I would definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much, and keep on rocking the free world. Expect more. And please, pick up this book. Don't lie to yourself. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for listening to the Chase Talks Hip Hop Podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you.
spot One, two, three, yeah, we never really stop Up in the lab, making sure the project's hot Putting in work and it's all I know All this stress and on me, yeah, it's got to go My brother's finally clean, we can move right on Ease all my struggles when I write these songs Funny that I can't just write my wrongs But I try to live long so I can't do me I'll stay out of your way if you stay out of mine Kick it back, relax, I'ma take my time Kick it back, relax, I'ma take my time Go buck wild when I'm up in the spot One, two, three, yeah, we never really stop Up in the lab, making sure the project's hot Putting in work and it's all I know Nothing really lasts and you can't take it with you. I'm gonna shine today.